a couple of weeks ago, while I was recovering from uh, surgery, uh, I had a dream that was extremely vivid. And it, I, I don't um, believe it to really be like, you know, this huge d deal or anything like that. But, um, but it shook me a little bit, and it took me about a half a day to, to forget it. Not forget it, but to, to stop being affected by it. And, um, you know, in the dream, I was uh, um, supposed to conduct a wedding ceremony, and uh, I kind of put it off and didn't really prepare that much for it because it was a very small wedding, and it didn't seem like a very big deal. And this is all in the dream, you know, so I kind of had a, a template in my mind, and I had a loose plan of how I would pull things together at the last minute uh, and be able to pull off the ceremony. Well... Um, in the dream, um, the the uh, contents of my iPad, which is where all my material, uh, you know, is to pull things together from, uh, was erased. And I found myself on my way in the car to the wedding with nothing, no nothing, not even a, the template of the, the words for a wedding and no way to get it because it wasn't here at the church or anything like that. And so I began to panic in my mind. Sure enough, we get there, and we were delayed, and we were late. And so now we're late for a wedding that I have absolutely nothing for. And I come in, and everybody's seated. The bride and the groom are already in the front, and I'm coming in late around the side with nothing in my hands. <laughs> and so I fumbled for a minute or two with my iPad, hoping that you know maybe one more try and things will come back up, but nothing did. And there I was, all eyes, everything on me, and having absolutely nothing uh, by way of preparation to, to do in this wedding. And so I asked the guests to be gracious with me and to just let me be excused for one moment. And so I went into the, to the lobby of this guest church, this place that I was unfamiliar with. And some, uh, I found out that the wedding was much larger than I had anticipated. And again, this is all in my dream, you know, and there were some distinguished people there, some governors of states, just, you know, how dreams are, you know, there's just weird things. And so now like the panic is setting in, like, this is a big deal, <laughs> you know, and I'm unprepared. And uh, I don't know what eventually shook me out of it and woke me up in the whole thing, but I was really bothered by that dream, <laughs> you know, because it felt so real, the emotion of it and, and being in that situation. And, you know, when that happens, I mean, just pretty much anything in life, uh, having just had surgery, God already had my attention uh, on things. And, and I said, Lord, what is, you know, what is that? And, and the answer was swift and simple. And he said, don't be unprepared for the wedding. <laughs> and and I know exactly what he was talking about. He's not talking about the wedding that I'll conduct someday or whatever. He's talking about the the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is the coming of the Lord. Uh, the time when we will be called and are going to be called uh, to be in his presence, you know, to be raptured. And that's a very real thing, and we will stand before him. And... Uh, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, don't be unprepared for the wedding. But I think it extends beyond me. You know, I think that that exhortation is for all of us, that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us has the potential of being unprepared for that wedding. And I think it's a scary thing uh, and a fearful thing and a very real thing that we ought to consider and um, and that really became the inspiration uh, for what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. I'm not sure. I don't think that what we'll do in Romans will take the entire year, you know, but could. <laughs> but, uh, um, but it's what inspired it. Jesus said, 
in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, uh, Jesus said this, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And I want you to just think about what Jesus says there, because he said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord. And, and typically, you know, the, the, the belief, and, and rightly so, in modern Christendom, is that all they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what Jesus is saying here is that there's more to it than just somebody saying with their mouth, Lord, Lord, or calling Jesus the Lord of their life. That the profession or the confession of faith, what we would call the response or the, 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 the walk forward to the altar or the prayer that we would pray to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, uh, that that's the beginning point, but that isn't the thing that ultimately seals our salvation. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, not everyone that just says Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of God, but rather, in addition to those that just say it, it's them that do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And he says then in verse 22, something very shocking. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, again professing, have we not prophesied in thy name? So these are those that not only made a profession of faith, but they actually taught, they preached, they shared the gospel with others, and they did it in his name. It wasn't a false Jesus, it wasn't somebody else, but these people actually even served in his name. And then he says further that they'll say, and in thy name have cast out demons. So that means that they even uh, possess supernatural power to do something beyond the ordinary. So not only are they preaching, but they're empowered to some degree. And then he says, and in thy name, so that's the third time, this is all in his name, done many wonderful works. So these people have served, they've done works, they've committed in some way time and effort to his cause. But Jesus says in conclusion to it in verse 23, he says that I will, then I will profess, and there's a play on words there because they made a profess professing a profession, right? And he says that I will then profess to them that I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And so what we find is that there's a bunch of people, many people in that day, unprepared for the wedding. They made a profession of faith. They were deceived into thinking that they were saved because of the things that they were doing but they never came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ where there was an intimacy, and listen, and the things that they were doing were flowing out of the relationship that they had with him. They were doing all those things, hoping to please him and to jumpstart a relationship, but they didn't have one to begin with. It was all just religion. It was works. It was going through the motion. It was following, okay, well, this is the black and white, but there was never an opening of the heart. There was never a true salvation. There was never a true conversion. And thus Jesus gives a warning and he says, take heed that you're not deceived. When the book of James or the author James, the apostle James, when he's talking in James chapter one about um, temptation 
and sin and death. He gives this whole progression of how uh, temptation grips a life and that it gives birth to sin, which then, when it's full grown, uh, causes death. And then he says, he says this in his own commentary on that concept in uh, chapter 1, verse 22. James says this. He says, but be ye... But is contrast, in contrast to those that fall into temptation and then fall away from Christ, in contrast to that, he says, but be ye, you be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. In other words, a warning against the potential of being deceived into thinking that because we hear the word of God and even understand it and maybe even apply it in certain ways, that we can do all those things and yet never be doers of the word. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, then he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and then beholding himself, he goes his way and straightway he forgets what manner of man he was. And so what he's saying there is that it's possible for us to look into the word of God and we're able to see Everything except the sin that it exposes in our own life. How many times have we been sitting in church and we thought, man, I wish this person was here to hear this message. Or we hear a scripture applied and we, that's for that person, you know. That's a perfect application for that. Oh, if only there was a room full of Catholics to hear this message, you know, or something like that. And oftentimes we can, we understand it. We're aware of it. We know what it's saying. But we're not allowing the word of God to shine its light on our heart. Yesterday, my wife was doing a Bible time with my two youngest boys, a six and four-year-old. And she looked over at where the wood stove was, and she says, hey, does that area look clean to you guys? And they said, yeah, and it does look clean. It's, you know, it's got a plant, you know, plastic plant on top of the wood stove for the summer, you know, and the whole area just looks nice. And then she took a little flashlight, and she shined it right across the floor, you know, horizontal with the floor, and then along the wood stove. And boy, there's spiders and cobwebs and old ash dust you know, and they were like, is it clean now? And they were like, whoa, <laughs> no, it's filthy, mom. It's a mess. And she said to them, as the word says to us, so is our heart. And when we refuse to look at what our own heart is, it looks pretty clean when we compare it with everyone else. When we look at it in the context of everyday life, when we think about the wrongs that exist in the world, we think, wait, I'm doing okay. But if we allow the searchlight of the word of God to shine upon our heart, not looking at anyone else, but saying, Lord, expose the sin in me, then what we realize is what Jeremiah said is true. Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know. And James says that if we are hearers only of the word, but we don't allow the word of God to search our heart and then bring us to repentance and change, then we're self-deceived. And we're in danger of not only being unprepared for the wedding, but even worse than that, to hear Jesus say to us, depart from me, I never knew you. He says, but whoso, James, looks into the perfect law of freedom and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And so the warning and the exhortation to not be self-deceived the Apostle Paul started the church in Corinth, and I think that of all the churches that he started, the Corinthians, for some reason, they were one of his favorite groups of people. You know, if a parent 
can say that. I don't know if they can. You know, but Paul seemed to have an affection, a place in his heart for the Corinthians. Yet of all the churches, the church in Corinth was the most messed up of all of them. They were the most reflective of modern American society. They were very wealthy. They had pleasures and liber liberal uh, um, attitudes towards sin and pleasure and all that kind of a thing. And a lot of the sin of the society had crept into the church. And so the Corinthian Christians were a very carnal bunch. And when you read First and Second Corinthians, you realize that very quickly. Because everything that Paul has to say to them is correcting them because of their sexual sin and their indulgence and their gluttony and uh, their, their compromise and their lack of concern for others and just the strange things that they were doing, the selfishness that existed and all the rest. You realize that the, the society had affected the church. And so Paul writing to the Corinthians concerning this, he says uh, to them, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes to the, to the church in Corinth and he gives them a warning. He says, know ye not, he says, don't you know this, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, he says. Neither fornicators, that's those that practice sexual things outside of a covenant of marriage, nor idolaters, those are those that are given and consumed with things uh, that are first in their life other than Christ himself. Nor adulterers, those, that, those are them that participate in sexual things while they're in marriage, but they go outside of the marriage. Neither effeminate, that's homosexuality, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says this to a group of Christians. And he warns them and he says, don't be deceived. That if these things are descriptive of your life, then you're in danger of not only being unprepared for the marriage, but of having Jesus look at you and say, I never knew you. Though you said, Lord, Lord, though you did many wonderful works in my name. Now, the hope in all that is that Paul says in verse 11, just one verse after, he says, and such were some of you, but now you are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Meaning that just because one of those character traits might be the definition of our life doesn't mean that we're, we're without hope. That there's power in the Spirit of God to change those things and to see those things removed from our life. He says in conclusion uh, to, to the matter a little bit later on in the chapter, he says, For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Meaning it's not enough for us to just say, well, in the spirit. You know, I'm in spirit. I've said the words. And so his spirit is in me. No, no, no. In your body. It's got to be a reality in our lives that the, the character of Christ is being cultivated inside of us. To the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, listen to what Paul said to the church in Galatia. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest or clearly known. Now, what is the flesh? The flesh is the sinful person that we bring into this world. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. We know what they are. Adultery, fornication, 
uncleanness, lasciviousness. Lasciviousness just means license to do whatever I want. I just feel liberty. I can behave how I want. Idolatry, witchcraft, which is drug use of any sort. Hatred, that's a hatred. We know what hatred is. Variance, emulations, which is uh, emulations is jealousies. Wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. All these are the works of the flesh. Paul says this, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. And he tells us again, don't be deceived. He says in 6-7, just a few verses later, Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And so on and so forth it goes. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he's talking about this great salvation that we have, he says that because we've been saved by grace through faith, he says we ought to be cultivating a character of holiness within our lives. And the reason why we should be cultivating the, the holiness of God in our lives is because God says to us, Be ye holy, even as I am holy. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Did you hear that? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And thus it isn't enough for us to just make a profession of faith and to stand upon that profession and say, well, I went forward or I said, Lord, Lord, or I believe. No, there's got to be something more than that taking place in our hearts or else we've deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. In Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, the last thing that's recorded that Jesus spoke in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, uh, verses 10 through 16, it says, He said unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Do you see that word do? That do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For outside are dogs and sorcerers, that's drug users again, and whoremongers, that's any type of sexual uncleanness, and murders and idolaters and whosoever, whosoever loves and makes or crafts a lie. So listen to what, what's being said there. That those that do those things will not be inside the city. They're outside the city. They don't have the right to the tree of life. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and the morning star. And so Jesus gives us the final words. He gives us warning 
concerning our salvation. Now, my fear as a pastor and as a pastor here at Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley is that there may be among us, and not just in this room, but in, in, in you know, the whole of our church and, and in our county, many that have a false assurance and thinking that they're saved because of something that they're doing, something that they've done, but in reality, they're not really saved at all. There's just a profession, but there's no true transformation, no work of holiness that's going on in their life. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told a parable about ten virgins. I'm hoping, I don't want to read the whole passage, but I'm hoping that you guys are familiar with it. But he says in that passage that there were five of those ten virgins that were wise and five of those ten virgins that were foolish. And five of the, 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 the five wise virgins took oil in their lamps. And the five foolish had no oil in their lamps. And at midnight, there was a cry made, the bridegroom comes, prepare the way, be ready to go into the wedding. And the five that were wise trimmed their lamps, lit it up, and they were ready. And when the bridegroom came, they went into the wedding. But the five virgins that were all lumped together in the ten, the five that had no oil in their lamp, they were left behind. And, and they did not have time to, to, to set things right in the way that they needed to in order to go into the wedding when the wedding came. Well, the oil in the Bible is always, always a picture and a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And without holiness, there is no Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, there is no holiness. And thus we see the importance in the Christian life of not only making a profession of faith and believing, but of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God and thus the fruit of holiness being manifested in our life. And if that's not there, then we have reason to be warned because we might be deceived. And so Jesus gives warning, don't be deceived. Many will say to me in that day, did we not, did we not, did we not, in thy name, in thy name, in thy name. And he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. So being a Christian and being a disciple is a combination of both faith, that is believing what God said, and holiness, doing the things that God said. Charles Spurgeon said it was like an archway and that the two halves of an archway are both essential for the archway to stand. And he said that half of it is grace and faith, and the other half is holiness. And if you were to take away grace and faith, holiness by itself makes you a Pharisee, and the whole thing falls down. And if you just take grace and faith, but there is no holiness, then grace and faith falls down. But grace and faith with holiness holds the whole thing together. And that's why Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about it. They were holy, but they had no grace and faith. See, so it's an important combination of the two. Now, there's two types of holiness, and that's important to understand. There's holiness that's manufactured in the flesh, and there's holiness, which is the byproduct or the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And holiness that's manifested in the flesh is holiness where we say, okay, well, I'm going to reform my own life. And so I'm going to look at everything in my life that's out of place and I'm going to make it right. And through my effort and my strong will and my discipline 
and the barriers and parameters that I build up in my own life and the promises and pledges that I make to God and the promise keepers forms that I sign, all of that and the accountability that I have with other brothers, all of that is going to make me holy. That's a false holiness. Because you, you might be able to go in that strength for a little while, but what the outcome of that's going to be is hypocrisy. Because there's no power in the flesh to make a person holy in and of themselves. And so when your holiness fails, now you've got to hide the fact that you're unholy and hypocrisy is born. It's a holiness from the flesh. The other type of holiness is a holiness that comes from abiding in Jesus Christ. A continual filling with the Holy Spirit. A continual trusting and depending on Him to be everything in me that I cannot be myself. And when I live in fellowship with Him, in communion with Him, continually taking in the Word of God and letting it search my heart, and then in obedience to His Word, repenting of the things that I'm convicted of, and then taking the open door to flee temptation when it comes, and allowing Him to change my desires on the inside, it's slower But there's a work of holiness that comes from his work in my life, and it's from the inside out. It's not a fake and false holiness. And thus we come to the book of Romans. And why is Romans so important and so essential when it comes to this concept of faith and holiness and not being deceived into thinking that we're saved when really we're not? What the book of Romans does in the Bible is that it answers the question, what is true Christianity? Not the fake kind, not the hypocritical kind, not the legalistic, works-centered oriented kind, but what is true Christianity? What is a true Christian? What does it mean to be a true Christian? And that's the theme and the object of the book of Romans. It's why Paul wrote it, so that we would understand what it really means to be a Christian and how these things are played out and worked out in our lives so that we're ready when the wedding comes and we don't find ourselves deceived. There are many false brands of Christianity out there. And I hope that none of us find ourselves hearing one day from the Lord or seeing for ourselves one day when we're left behind that he never knew us, that we believed something the wrong way. The book of Romans is probably one of the most important books in the New Testament, if not in the entirety of the Bible. It's been called by some the constitution of Christianity because of how clearly and uh, um, systematically it lays out for us exactly what it means. It is so clear, and it makes it so clear what, what it means to be a Christian. Um, personally, I think that it's probably one of my favorite books in the Bible and the thing that has transformed my life and has been the most influential in my walk with the Lord, the book of Romans. Before I was a Christian, uh, and I was brought up in the Catholic church, but we were not walking with him. It was not a saved household. Uh, I'm not saying that to come against Catholics. I'm just telling you my situation, what I was brought up in. And I was the furthest thing from a Christian uh, that, that you could be by the time I was 18, 19 years old. And I was exposed to the Bible my whole life. I knew all the stories. I knew about creation and the flood. And uh, I knew the parables and the stories of Jesus. I knew about the cross and all that stuff. Uh, I was well-educated in, in, in all of it. And none of it ever made any sense to me. And there was no um, reality in any of it. It was just uh, this whole... Uh, um, 
cross-section of society that I branded as religious. That's the religious world, religious people, religious stuff and the whole thing. And when I came to a point in my life, by God's grace, that I had hit rock bottom and he had allowed everything that I wanted and tried to fail. And I came to a point where I knew I either needed God or I was going to self-destruct. I got in my car and I didn't know what a sinner's prayer was. I didn't know what salvation was, but I got in my car and I took my Good News Catholic Bible. I threw it in the front seat and I drove away, not knowing if I would ever come back. And while I drove out of the city that I lived in a suburb of and just drove away, with tears in my eyes, I said to God, God, if you're real, then I need to know it. And if you're real, I'll do anything you want. If you're real, I'll be monastic and shave my head and, and live in a monastery and wear robes. I'll whip myself and chest high. I'll do, God, if you're real, I'll do anything you tell me to do. But I need to know that you're real because I can't live for something that I don't know if it's real or not. Some superstitious set of beliefs. And so I drove that day and drove out of state. I was somewhere in Pennsylvania by, by evening fall and I parked my car off road, just drove down this little dirt road and then found a, a river. There was a little stream and I had no tent, I had nothing. I built a little fire on the ground and I slept out on the dirt next to that river by the fire that night. When I woke up in the morning, I grabbed the Good News Catholic Bible out of the front passenger seat of my car and I went like this. And I did that Bible roulette thing where you just... And when I, when I stopped, it opened to Romans 1, 1. And I said, okay, this is as good a place as any. I've done the Genesis thing. I've done the Matthew thing. I'm going to read it and whatever. Not, nothing there. I might as well just start right here. And as I read Romans chapter 1 and then Romans chapter 2 and then Romans chapter 3 all that morning and then Romans chapter 4, for the first time in my life, and I know this was supernatural, this wasn't from me, the Bible made sense. Not everything. I didn't understand every word, you know, and concept and wouldn't have been able to explain it and the whole thing. But I understood the things that were being written there. And I was amazed at how contemporary it was. I was amazed that it was as real in my life as I read it that morning as though it had been written that morning. Every word of it was alive. And on every page in every chapter that I read that day, I found myself asking the question out loud in the air where no one else was around, that if the Bible says blank, why was I taught blank in the Catholic Church? Because that's not what the Bible says. And then I would read on a little further. Well, wait a minute. The Bible is saying this. If the Bible says this, then why was I taught this? And I began right away to see that the prejudices that I had against God were things that I had picked up from man's system of religion, not from what the truth of the Bible actually says. And what happened is that day I realized two things. I realized, one, maybe I'm not as against God as I think I am. That happened from the Bible. And the second thing I realized is, wow, I can understand the scriptures if I just read them. <laughs> and it began the journey of my walk with the Lord. I don't know if he saved me the day before when I said, God, I'll do anything. That may, might have been my sinner's prayer. You know, he could tell me in heaven the moment that, you know, that happened. You know, I don't know what it was. But I fell in love with the Bible and it was due to the things that are written here, the answers to what it is to be a Christian. I believe it was the Spirit of God 
that made it fall to to Romans 1.1 that day that those things could happen in my life because it answers those questions and it is so incredibly clear. And over the years, as I've gone through Romans over and over again, visiting and revisiting the text and seeing it with more clarity and now understanding the outline of it and how it all fits together, it is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel and of God's salvation that exists in all the Bible. And so... Um, we begin, and we're, we're going to read the first 16 verses this morning just by way of introduction to the theme, but we're not going to spend a ton of time there because our purpose is not to, 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 to see every single word, uh, especially of this part, but we want to understand the theme. What is Paul getting at? And so he says, he begins by introducing himself. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and separated unto the gospel of God. He gives three things by way of introducing himself. Number one, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, meaning that that was his identity. Above all and before all is that he was a slave belonging to the Lord. Second, his calling is that he was an apostle. An apostle is one who sent out to establish the works of God. A modern-day missionary would be the equivalent of it to the best that we can produce today. And then the third thing that he says is that he separated unto the gospel of God. And the word separated is very important because what it means to be separated is it means that you were once a part of something and that now you are no longer a part of that something because you've been set aside for something else. And the whole Christian life is a life of separation. Every single one of us has been called to be separated from this world. But the problem is many people take it no further than that. They're separated from the world, but they're not separated unto something else, and thus they flounder and wander, and they never discover what it is that God's called them to be or to do. We're not separated from the world just to be separated from the world, but we're separated unto something. But oftentimes, if we're not separated from the world, we never discover what it is that we're separated unto, what it is that God has called us to. And so Paul shows the importance of being separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before, speaking now of the gospel, and that's his theme, by the way. You could circle that word when he says separated unto the gospel of God. He uses that on purpose because that's the theme of the whole book, the gospel of God. And then he describes that gospel. The word gospel means good news. And, in, and the word gospel is also synonymous with the message of salvation. You can say, say that gospel and Christianity are synonymous terms. And so Paul says he's separated unto that gospel. Now concerning that gospel, he says, first of all, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was spoken of beforehand. It's not a new idea. It was God's plan from the beginning. Secondly, it concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus, he points to the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies that qualified him to be the Messiah and that he was the seed of David. He must be the seed of Abraham, he must come from the tribe of Judah, and then he must be the seed of David. And Paul says that he was. He met the qualifications, and then furthermore, he was declared to be the Son of God with power when he rose from the dead. 
And that's what makes the gospel good news, is that it gives the answer for death. And nothing else can do that. The wages of sin is death, Paul will say. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ, and he purchased that life by rising from the dead. By whom, speaking still of Jesus in the gospel, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now notice that. He says that we've received grace and apostleship or a calling. And he tells us that the reason for, is a reason word there in verse 5, for obedience to the faith. Meaning that when God gives us grace for salvation, he's also desiring to give us power for obedience. Do you see that? Is that obedience is empowered by the grace that comes to us when we give our lives to Christ. So he's given us power to obey, and notice that it's among all nations for his name, meaning that there's nobody who's outside the reach of that power. So no one can say, well, God can't change me. Well, I can't obey. I don't have power to obey. That might be for some people. That might be for preachers. That might be for someone who's Jewish, but it can't reach me. I'm too far into the world or too far into my sin. And No, 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 no. He's given us grace for obedience. And he says this to who? Notice in verse 7. He says, to all that be in Rome. Now, who were the Romans? They were the most antagonistic society to the Christian world in Paul's day. And so, to those that were in Rome, God was willing to give grace for obedience. And so, if the person who's the furthest away from God can have grace to obey in Paul's day, then it stands to reason that's still true today, isn't it? To all that be at Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul gives his desire and intentions to come to them. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. So Paul wants to go there, and he's praying for that. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you might be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul says, I want to come there because I've got something to give you, and I know that you've got something to give me. By the way, that's the value of Christian fellowship. Do you know that God has given to every one of us something that we're to contribute and, and, and add to the life of someone else that can come from no other source than from you and me? I mean, look around the room. Is there anyone else that looks exactly like you? Anyone who talks like you or thinks like you or is wired exactly the same? God has made us each individually different. And he's given to each one of us something to contribute to build up the life of someone else. But if we don't interact with each other and have fellowship with each other, then not only are we not contributing the thing that God's given to us, but we're also not receiving the thing that God's given to someone else that he wants to use to add to us. And so Paul says, I want to come there because I've got something to give, and I know you've got something to give as well. He says, now I would not have you ignorant, brothers, that oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but I was restricted from it so that I might have some fruit among you also, even as I had among other Gentiles. 
For I am a debtor, or I am a slave, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. And speaking of his calling, I am called by God to get there, to get to you, even as I have to everyone else. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And now verses 16 and 17, I want you to circle it in your Bible if you have a pen. Because it is the theme, the heading, the highlight the reason for the rest of the whole letter. So if you're outlining, if you want to understand the system of how all of this works, it starts right here in verse 16. This is the theme. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. He begins it by by saying in his own life that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's many people in the world today that are ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is anti-world culture. World culture is to go after the things of the flesh and human nature. But the gospel culture is to go after the things of God and obedience to things that are contrary to the flesh. And so because it's unpopular to go upstream, especially in something as strong when you're talking about someone's flesh, many people are ashamed of the gospel being a reality in their life. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to swim upstream. I'm not ashamed to be contrary to to human nature or to anybody else. And here's why. He says, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Paul recognized and understood that there was power in the message itself to transform lives and to bring people into salvation. I want you to listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just the first couple of verses. Listen to this logic that Paul had concerning the power of the gospel. He said, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, again, think about it. It's Corinth. Everything in Corinth was driven by the wisdom of the Greeks and the polished words of the orator. That's what drove Grecian culture. And here he's in Corinth, which is the epicenter of it. And Paul says, when I came to you, I purposed in my heart that I was not going to come to you with man's wisdom or with oratory excellence. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, that was my message. Jesus Christ crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Not like Atlas or the other Greek gods that were venerated for their strength. He says, I was with you in weakness, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, when Paul went into Corinth, he went in weakness and in fear and trembling with stuttering words. And he just said, there's a savior and he died for you and he loves you. And if you'll repent of your sins and turn your life over to him, he promises to give you eternal life. He fulfilled the prophecies. The word of God is true. 
And there was something in that message that got under the surface and affected change in the lives of people that were completely contrary to it. And it was a demonstration of the power of God to change a life. And it didn't come from Paul's giftedness. It didn't come from his wisdom. It didn't come from his education. It didn't come from his experience. It came completely from the power of the message itself. And that should give you and I great hope. Because what it means is that our effectiveness in sharing the gospel with others is in nothing more than our faithfulness to just give it away in its simplicity in spite of our weakness and inability. And that God can take the weak thing that we are and he can use it in someone's life to change them forever. It's the power of the gospel. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon one time, how do you defend the gospel? And he laughed. And he said, defend the gospel? He said, how do you defend a lion? You don't defend a lion, you just let it out of its cage. It'll defend itself. And he said, that's my attitude towards the gospel. I don't defend the gospel, I just give it out. The gospel is powerful to do its work in and of itself. He says, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Now watch this and we close in verse 17. He says, for therein, in the gospel, in the message of salvation, in Christianity, for therein is, and listen, because we, we go right back to the beginning with this, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Circle those words or underline them. The righteousness of God. Do you recall just a few minutes ago I said there's two types of holiness? There's a holiness that comes from the flesh in my effort, and there's a holiness that comes from God. Well, there's a righteousness, same thing, a righteousness, righteousness is holiness. There's a righteousness that comes from me, and there's a righteousness that comes from God. And Paul's theme as we go through these chapters is the righteousness that comes from God, not the righteousness that comes from me. He's going to say in chapter 3 that there's a righteousness from God that's now revealed apart from the works of the law. When we get to chapter 10, he's going to say that through Christ Jesus, there's a righteousness of God that comes to us apart from the righteousness of the law or of my works. So there's two righteousnesses. There's a righteousness that comes from religion and self-effort and pharisaical living. And there's a righteousness that comes because God gives it to me. God purchased it and puts it inside of me. God now begins to cultivate the fruit of that righteousness coming out of my life. It's a righteousness that comes from God apart from the works of the law. It's a righteousness. It's not just words. It's not just, well, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's the righteousness that's been gifted to me and therefore it just is. No, no, no. It looks like something but its origin and its power is altogether something other than the world's. It's not self-effort, but it is abiding relationship. And so Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now watch this. From faith to faith. You say, now what in the world does that mean? That sounds like a song by George Michael. <laughs> What does it mean, a righteousness of God that comes from faith to faith? It's like this. The first word faith is used as a verb, and the second time he uses the word faith, it's used as a noun. And so what he's saying is that this righteousness of God is from faith 
active faith. It's a verb. It's something that I do. I believe. I'm believing. That's the verb. That's the doing. And what that active faith is producing is that it's placing me in the faith, which is a noun, person, place, or thing, right? So my faith that's acted upon, I'm acting upon my belief, and I'm going after the things of God, is placing me in the faith that is the gospel. And so it's from faith, that is my faith, unto faith, the faith, the Christian faith, as it is written, and he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 3, that the just will live by faith. That is, those that have been justified. Now, that's a word that's going to come up over and over again in the book of Romans, the word just or justified. And what it means is righteous. If you're in a court of law and you're declared justified, it means that you're acquitted, right? You're, you're free of the charges. You're justified. You're righteous. And so how will the righteous live or obtain or have life? It's by faith. And so my active faith in believing the gospel is the thing that's going to bring me into this righteousness of God. Now, over the next weeks, as we pick up from there, we're going to find out what that means. What does it mean to obtain the righteousness that comes from God? What is faith? How does it work in my life? What does it produce? What makes me a true Christian? And thus Paul is developing it for us. And the hope and the desire is that we would be true Christians true disciples, not name only, not self-deceived, not thinking that because we made a profession or because we do things or attend that we're saved, once saved, always saved. I'm just in the faith. It's just big blanket grace. Yeah, he's gracious, but he's holy and he's to be feared. And without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And so my prayer is that God's word affects our lives and our hearts and that we're given to him in ways that we never have been before, in deeper ways, that we surrender more of our lives to him, and that we are Christians in the full sense of the word. Amen?